This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally, or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Be diligent or study to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line, and if you happen to be a first-time listener, we're so glad that you can join us for the next hour. Uh, We take questions that people have concerning God's Word. Maybe it's an issue of study that you need some help on, or you're facing a challenge in your family or ministry and you'd like biblical counsel. Well, if we can help, all you need to do, again, is pick up the phone. The local number, the 843 exchange, is 525-1859. Or toll-free, the 877-TOLL-FREE number is the call letters WAGP980. Either way, you can get through. Or many people just email us directly into the studio. We're happy to receive your emails. And if you'd like to do that, it's TBL. That stands for the Bible line, TBL at WAGP.net. If you do call, we do give preference to live callers. Some people call, and they don't want to go on the air but they are just more comfortable dictating their question and listening to the answer, and we're happy to receive it that way. So let's go ahead and jump in with both feet. Indeed, Pastor, one of those people did call and dictated their question. In John fourteen twenty one. Jesus says he will disclose or reveal himself. Other than through Scripture and prayer, how does Jesus disclose or reveal himself? Well, that's a, that's a great question. Of course, this is what we call the... Uh, upper room uh, discourse, and he says, in that day you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. When you think about Christ or God, the Father or the, by the Spirit disclosing themselves, it's really on two levels in the Bible. There's a salvation disclosure disclosure of sorts, and then there's what we call a sanctification or growth ex, uh, disclosure. So so both are taught in God's Word. And so, for instance, um, in chapter 10 of Luke's Gospel, he had sent the 70 out to preach, and uh, they come back, and they're all rejoicing, and, and uh, Jesus, uh, you know, when they said, look, even the demons are subject to us in your name, uh, Jesus reminds them, he says, do not rejoice in this, but the, the, the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. And so God um, tells us to put first things first, and sometimes we can become enamored with God using us in a particular situation. But the most important thing in all of life is the fact that God has redeemed us and saved us, and we should never, ever forget that, because if we do, when ministry seemingly discourages us, and any Christian who is either in full-time ministry or just faithful to serve God, sooner or later they're going to be discouraged because the results may not be what they had hoped for. So uh, this, of course, led the Lord uh, to go into to prayer. At that very time, he rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit and said, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things 
from the wise and the intelligent. The wise and the intelligent contextually would be the Pharisees and the scribes who were studied and schooled in the scriptures, but because of their hardness of heart, uh, they were not humble before the Lord. And so he says, you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants, to little children, to babes, you might say. Yes, this, uh, yes, Father, for this was well-pleasing in your sight. And then he makes a very similar statement that you find in John's gospel, um, not just in a uh, sanctifying way, which is what your passage deals with, but in a justification way. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom he wills to reveal him. So here's a disclosure in terms of uh, justification, in terms of what we might call salvation, a salvation disclosure. And what can keep that from happening is uh, a, a pride. It's uh, a lack of humility. God gives grace to the humble, but he resists the proud. So the Spirit of God stirs the human heart because there's none righteous, not even one. There is none who seeks God. And that's why in John 6, Jesus can say, no one can come to the Father unless the Father draws him. But when God begins to draw you and opens your heart, and that's certainly God's intention and desire because he sent the Spirit to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. But if we, in our sinful pride, resist that, then the basic truth of the gospel can be hidden from us, where we don't understand or see with spiritual eyes the truth of what Jesus has done and who he is, and as a result, we end up being sometimes lost for all of an eternity. So um, God's desire is that none should perish. Now, in John 14, this is a secondary kind of, um, I say secondary, just a different kind of disclosure that Jesus is speaking of. On the one hand, if you have received salvation, he who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me, and the one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. The pattern in the New Testament of conversion is that if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation, and there is a new desire to follow after Christ. Those who belong to Christ, Paul will write, have crucified the flesh in regards to its evil deeds. And so there is a new proclivity to follow after the things of Christ, but a Christian can choose to disobey. And so Jesus made it very clear that your love is seen in your obedience. Today we measure love by the way we feel or the experience we have. But you take all the air out of the balloon. Jesus said, you, you love me, then you obey me. And as you obey what you know, you grow. How so? Because he said this individual, the believer, he's speaking to believers in this context, not to lost people, but to believers, that the Father will love him and I will love him and disclose myself to him. Well, I thought God loves everyone. He does in a general, broad way. He certainly loves the whole world. Um, but there's a special affinity that God has for those who know him. And uh, those who know him are to obey him. And w- when you obey what you know, God discloses new revelation to you. Some of you listening to me today, your walk with Jesus Christ has become dry and You've lost your passion and zeal for the Lord, and very often it's for the simple reason that you are disobeying God. You're holding on to an area of your life where you choose not to obey God, and when we do that, God can't show us anything new. It really slows the whole process down. But when you are in the center of God's will and obeying what you know, 
then you are going to grow. And God is going to reveal new truth to you. But if you won't obey the truth that he has shown you, why should he show you anything new? It's a biblical principle that runs through Scripture, not just in terms of those who have met the living God, but even unbelievers. Like in Romans 1, a man doesn't choose to respond to the revelation of God's attributes as seen in the creation around them. And so God gives them over to a darkened heart. And so in reference to salvation, as we obey the truth, uh, God just becomes a vital part of our life. And God has shown his new truth from Scripture, and it becomes very, very exciting. And that's really what his desire is. That's a great question that someone just called in, and maybe you have a question that you'd like to call in. Again, the numbers, Rick? 843-525-1859 if you have a question. Also toll-free, 877-924-7980. And Kim writes, what does God say about differences in beliefs between married people, such as a spouse who affirms homosexuality? No union that is God-ordained shall be torn apart, but how to go about teaching slash raising kids in this union when there are fundamental differences such as these? I understand the command and requirement of a wife to honor and respect and love her husband as he's the head of the family, as Christ is his head. Well, this is a great question that Kim is asking, and so let me see if I can respond. Uh, the Bible is very clear. Uh, it's not, there's no ambiguity here in terms of what God says about the sin of homosexuality any more than there's any ambiguity of what God says concerning premarital sex or extramarital sex. God's Word is very, very clear. God calls the act of homosexuality, an unnatural act where a man lies with a man, with a, a woman, with a woman. He calls it an abomination. In uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, uh, the Apostle Paul makes a very pointed statement in reference to deception. And again, I've said it many times, but the nature of deception is people who are deceived don't know they're deceived. Uh, that's, that, that's, why, that, that's why they're deceived, so to speak. Um, He said, or do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. There's a lot of deceived people. There's a lot of people sitting under pastors and in denominations that is advocating a homosexual lifestyle. I was in Massachusetts just a couple days ago, and I went by this church that uh, when I was growing up as a new believer, uh, I was a young adult at this point. I was 18, but I remember going by this church and Uh, I thought, well, you know, one of my best friends grew up in that church his whole life, and he doesn't know Christ, so it made me immediately suspect. And then speaking to some older Christians as a new Christian, they said, you know, that church doesn't have the gospel. And when I went by First Baptist Church of Worcester, Massachusetts, just a gorgeous piece of property, a magnificent building, next to the sign they have a gay flag flying with all of its colors. And you see that across New England now. That's the big thing and a lot of Methodist, Congregational, and even Baptist churches that don't have the gospel. And so those people are deceived. But God's word is clear. Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, porneia, that speaks to typically premarital sex, nor idolaters. Idolatry is anything you put above God. Now, a large percentage of the world literally bows down and practices idolatry. When I was in India, literally on every street, on every corner, there was acts of idolatry going on. India is a huge population base, over a billion people. In another three or four years, they're going to be larger population-wise than China itself. 
idolatry is across the land and in many parts of the world. So when we think of someone worshiping at a statue, or I remember this man just skin and bones uh, taking the family milk and pouring it at the base of the tree because he worshiped the tree god. Uh, There's over 300 million gods, I'm told, in India. Everything virtually is a god. That's idolatry, but there's other kinds of idolatry. Paul can say greed is idolatry. He can say sexual immorality is idolatry, where people serve that over the living God. Nor adulterous, moikea, uh, that refers to uh, extramarital sex, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Could not have said it any more plainly. If this is your lifestyle, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Why? Because it's indicative that you've not had a birth from above. And, of course, God can save anyone out of any kind of lifestyle. So don't dismiss the fact that because a man's a drunk, an adulterer, a fornicator, a male prostitute, a homosexual, that he is uh, unsavable. The next verse says, and such were some of you. But God, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. So getting back to Kim's question, sounds to me if there's a, a dichotomy of belief here over a clear moral issue that God has painted, uh, and one is against homosexuality and the other is in favor of it, that you're living with an unbelieving husband. Now, you want to test the waters just to make sure So what I might suggest to you is to say, husband, listen, I'd like us to be on the same page as much as possible when it comes to raising our children in the home. And I know that you feel like uh, homosexuality is okay. I feel like it's wrong. Would you watch a DVD with me that just kind of walks through all of the Bible uh, passages that deal with this subject and tell me where you differ? because I want to really understand where you're coming from. Um, You can get it online at searchthescriptures.org or even on YouTube. It's called, Is It Okay to Be Gay? So if you type in, Is It Okay to Be Gay? You'll probably get some uh, videos of people who say, yes, it is. You want to look for the one by Carl Brogy. So add that to the name. And I literally go through every passage in the Bible. And I go through the arguments that the liberal... Uh, scholar, the unbelieving pastor of our day uses to advocate homosexuality. They have an explanation for everything. And again, to use Peter's words, they twist the scriptures to their own destruction. So for instance, when Paul, just to give you one example, when he says um, in Romans chapter 1, that God gave them over to degrading passions for the women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also, the men abandon the natural function of the woman and burn in their desire towards one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. I remember years ago reading the chaplain uh, of Harvard University and his explanation on this. And he said, well, what this is referring to is if God made you heterosexual and you engage in a homosexual act, then that is evil. Or if God made you homosexual and you engage in a heterosexual act, that that's evil. He's twisting the scriptures to his own destruction. And I'm not sure that fellow today would even take that position anymore. But that's a typical kind of argument of how they get around it. So what it's going to come down to with your husband, and again, it's just so clear. And again, I will walk through every single passage 
it won't be an issue of does the Bible teach this. The issue is going to be, do I believe what the Bible says? And if your husband says, well, I reject what the Bible says, then you have 100,000% proof that he's lost. But here's the thing. When a person is born again, he has a new capacity to understand spiritual truth. Paul says a natural man, that's the way we come into this world. We're alive physically, but we're dead spiritually. A natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness to him. But when you are born again, the Bible says you receive the mind of Christ. What that, does that mean? It means you have a new ability to see spiritual truth. Jesus said, unless you are born again, you will not enter the kingdom of God. And unless you are born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. You do not have the ability to comprehend spiritual truth apart from a birth from above. So yes, he is the leader of your home, but that leader is a qualified leader. The leadership is to be in conjunction with scripture. And so if God is um, saying something that is contrary to your husband's leadership, you need to follow God. You need to teach your children that they are to respect their dad, they are to love their dad, they are to honor their dad, but their dad is wrong on this issue, that this is wrong, and we need to pray for dad, that God would open his eyes up. You know, very often I'll get questions from an unbelieving spouse, often the woman, because she sees the husband as her spiritual head, and she'll say, well, my husband goes to this liberal apostate church where, you know, maybe they even do or affirm gay marriages. We have two Presbyterian churches in Beaufort that endorse as PCUSA churches, homosexual marriage. That's evil. That's evil beyond evil. And they're causing people to stumble, little children who are being taught these things. And that's evil. And Jesus said, you cause a little one to stumble, it'd be better to have a millstone tied around your neck and drowned in the deepest sea than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. And so they'll say, do I go to this church with my husband hoping to win him? No, you don't. Why? Because you're violating another command. What command are you violating? you're violating the command of not forsaking the assembling together of the brethren. And when you have a a hornet's nest of unbelievers uh, under the umbrella of espousing what God calls wicked or evil, then you are in an unbelieving church under an unbelieving pastor, and you are doing spiritual damage to your children. And so what you should be saying to your husband is, husband, I love you, I respect you, I honor you as God calls me to, but I cannot honor you in areas where God says one thing and you say another. And by the way, this might end up being the impetus to winning that lost husband to Christ. And sometimes they're in an evangelical church. You know, from time to time, we have our kids perform on Wednesdays or Sunday mornings. And what I always find interesting is the unbelieving spouse or unbelieving grandparents sometimes or relatives have great difficulty saying no to a child when they're invited to come watch them perform. And in some Christian musical or whatever it might be. And sometimes, again, that becomes the uh, launching pad where a seed is planted in the human heart and the person comes to conversion. Sometimes it takes years. Sometimes it takes a short time. But God says you are to submit in the Lord. So it's a qualified submission. And so if God says on the first day of the week you're to gather together with born-again Christians, you need to find a born-again Bible-believing church and be a part of it but you respectfully tell your husband why you are doing that and you follow accordingly. Great question. Let's go on to the next. All right, 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line and we've got a live caller standing by, thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. 
Well, good morning, gentlemen. I got two quick questions. Since you're talking about homosexuality and all that, a man should desire a woman. Now, if I'm a Christian and I've been in church for a long entire years, in churches you can't find nothing because they're all women divorced with kids with baggage from previous marriages, and they're too old or they're too young in the church. So what do you do if you can't marry an unbeliever? So, so, so nobody has no interest in you. You couldn't afford to get married because it's too expensive. You know, people don't want to get married these days. So how, how do you deal with that situation? Well, um, if God wants you to be married, you can afford to do whatever God wants you to do. People always come up with a reason financially why they can't do something. Oh, we can't have any children, or we can only have two children because it's too expensive. No, you have the children God wants you to have, and you don't let the culture dictate uh, what your budget should be in the raising of those children. Look, if they have a warm place to stay and clothes on their back, which God promises to supply to his people, then they have all they need. Now, they might not live in a big house, and you may not be driving new cars, but if God calls you to have children, then you should raise them up in the discipline and admonition of the Lord. Likewise, in terms of the affordability of marriage, God wants you to be married. He's going to provide your needs. God never asks you to do something that he will not provide the means in which to accomplish it. That's a principle that runs all the way through the Word of God. And if you're in a church that is filled with people who are not of the marriageable qualifications, and ask God to provide that person. And again, if you're in a church where it's seemingly everyone is not qualified, then there's probably something wrong with that church, uh, because certainly a church should be reaching the broad spectrum of the culture. And so if they are reaching people in the culture, there will be new Christians who are believers. And if you have a church that's filled with unbelievers, then again, you're in the wrong church uh, because you are forsaking the assembling together of the brethren. And I know people all the time, and we just had someone join our church from Community Bible Church, and they had been members of a very liberal church here in Buford for over 20 years. Now, they both claimed to be born again. They had not had, you know, believer's baptism, but they both claimed to be born again as young people. They had received Christ. And now, you know, where the Methodist Church is arguing over this whole homosexual issue, uh, they just said it was too much for them. And even though the denomination has not officially sanctioned it, and the only reason they didn't officially sanction it here in America is because there's enough African Methodists on the continent of Africa who could outvote the American church. But if the vote was just left up to America... Uh, listen, they would have full homosexual rights. And the sad thing is, I know there's the book of discipline in the United Methodist Church, but the reality is, is it's really not followed. And there are people right now who are doing gay marriages. There are gay people in the ministry who are being ordained in the United Methodist Church. And people just look the other way. You know, they're not going to do anything. So, you know, what's on paper and what is in practice is two different things. But my point with this couple is they had been in this church for ever. And it was an unbelieving church. The majority of the people I know that church are lost. How do I know that? Because every time someone visits that church from that church and they visit CBC for whatever reason, and if I'm given the privilege to speak with them, 98% of them don't even know what the gospel is. When you see that pattern year after year after year, you know that you're dealing with unbelieving leadership in typically a lost congregation. So, um, you know, again, 
Uh, you need to be in a Bible-believing church, not one that's filled with unbelievers. I'm not saying that a church shouldn't have unbelievers who visit. In fact, the assumption in 1 Corinthians 14 is that if you are a gospel-preaching church, unbelievers will visit. We have unbelievers every single week by the grace and mercy of God who visit Community Bible Church. And that's part of God's people just doing their job, reaching out, caring, loving people, inviting them to the services each week, and that should happen, and that needs to happen. But when the membership, and there's a difference between an attender and a member, but when the membership is largely unregenerate, you are in a bad church, and you need to find another one. Great question. Let's go to the next. All right. Did you say you had another call? Oh, go ahead. Yes, sir. I got a question. I got a question. I know it's easy to say I'm done, but what about people come all kinds of diseases in the world? So, that's not an issue. Okay. My second question is... Well, let me just, let me, let me just comment on that. If you're marrying someone and they, um, you think because they have had a lifestyle of immorality and that they have some kind of sexual disease, and let me just say, if someone follows God's plan, it's a closed system, there is, it's impossible for sexual disease to come into the marriage unless somehow it was obtained through a a needle or something like that accidentally. But if there is a closed system, a man and a woman who are committed to each other in fidelity and obeying God, they can't bring to each other sexual disease into the marriage. And if someone has a past where you think maybe they have a sexual disease, you know, if they really love you and they care about you and they know they have that sexual disease, they wouldn't marry you. Or they wouldn't, you know, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't marry you knowing that they have this sexual disease. Or if you were uncertain, they would say, well, let me at least get tested so I know whether or not I have HIV, AIDS, or whatever it might be. But go ahead with your follow-up question. Okay, thank you. Um, but quite a question is, you know, when, when uh, Moses went to the mountain and he saw the burning bush? Yes. Right, uh, burning. So now the Bible says that the angel and the Lord was in the midst of the flame. So... My understanding, that was Jesus Christ in angelical form. So basically, Jesus Christ was in the midst of that burning bush. It's like Molasses, when he saw the, the ark, the flame came out, the angel of the Lord came out, and he said, I saw God. So basically, Jesus Christ was in the burning bush in angelical form, the angel of the Lord. Is that correct? Yes or no? Yeah, so um, in Exodus 3, the text that you are referencing, you find... Um Moses having the encounter, and it says, Now Moses was pasturing the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Um, The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush, and he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, and yet the bush was not consumed. And of course, um, this text says, Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight why the bush is not burned up. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. So the angel of the Lord is referenced as God. And so what's kind of interesting is that in the Old Testament, there's a number of appearances, not of an angel of the Lord, but the angel of the Lord. It's articular, the angel of the Lord. And in most of the passages, when it's referenced somewhere in the passage, he's referred to as Yahweh or Jehovah, uh, depending on your translation, or just God. The older translations would say Yehovah or Jehovah. Some, most of the new ones just say God. And so this is what we call a Christophany. 
uh, a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. And by the way, if someone is interested in listening, there's a course at Search the Scriptures. It's in our Institute of Biblical Studies. It's called Angelology. And in the course on Angelology, Study of Angels, uh, we deal with the angel of the Lord, that he's no ordinary angel, that there are certain times in the Old Testament where God himself appeared as an angel. And then the question becomes, which member of the Godhead? And you discover that through careful study of Scripture, letting Scripture interpret Scripture, especially reading even New Testament commentary, that this is the Lord Jesus. And that's why, by the way, after Bethlehem, the angel of the Lord never appears again. Angels of God do, but the angel of the God never appears again because once Christ incarnates himself in human flesh, he never appears again as the angel of the Lord. But yeah, this is an encounter that he is having with God. And by the way, this is a... This is an affirmation to Christ's deity, among other things. So, good question. I appreciate it. But if you really want to study this in detail and go through every angel of the Lord passage and why we know it's not God the Father or God the Spirit, but God the Son, you might want to go to searchthescriptures.org, type on angelology in the search bar, and listen to the message entitled The Angel of the Lord, and go through every single Old Testament passage. Good question. Let's go to the next. All right, 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, we've got another live caller standing by. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning, Dr. Brogy. I have three soul winning questions. Is that okay? Sure, go ahead. The first question is, uh, I was at a soul winning dinner last night, and some of the people were saying that there's no such thing as a gift of evangelism, that evangelism is an anointing. But I believe um, there is also a gift of evangelism in the Bible. Okay. That's question number one. Question number two is, in the context of someone being born again and trusting in Jesus, what does it mean to repent? And question number three is, they were talking about a popular soul-winning method that I'm not familiar with called the three circles, and they were saying that the three circles soul-winning method is not biblical. Okay. All right, so let me respond to those one at a time. Uh, first question is, uh, these people were saying that there is not a gift of an evangelism, but there is an anointing on and on someone doing evangelism. And that's kind of a half-truth, uh, but let me first deal with the subject specifically of gift. There are four passages in the New Testament that address the subject of spiritual gifts and those are easy to remember, 2.4s and 2.12s, Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 4, Romans 12, and then 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. And so here in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul is talking about giftedness with, within the body. It says, he, Jesus, who ascended is himself. He, who, who, he, Jesus, who descended is himself. He who ascended far above the heavens so that he might fill all things. And he gave some. And one of the reasons for his ascension, of, among other things, is to send the Spirit and 
also to give gifts. He gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Um, So this uh, passage mentions what we call leadership gifts in the New Testament. And by the way, it's important to distinguish in some passages between the office and a gift. There's the office of prophet in the Bible. There's the gift of prophecy. There's the office of apostle, not something that someone can fill today, but there's also the gift of apostleship. Apostoloi, apostles here, are literally the sent ones. And so it's used in a technical sense and a non-technical sense. How do I know that? Because Epaphroditus, who we know is not an apostle, because to have been an apostle, you had to have seen the risen Christ. You had to have been personally selected by him. And in addition, if those two things were true, there were certain signs, wonders, and miracles that only um, someone who had those two qualifications could do based on 2 Corinthians 12, 12. Paul says, I do the works of an apostle. Um, his argument there in 2 Corinthians twelve twelve is entirely meaningless if these are things that everyone or anyone could do, as some would advocate today. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance and by signs and wonders and miracles. If everyone could do those, then Paul's argument that these distinguish him as an apostle is just basically meaningless. But there's the gift of apostle uh, as well. And so Epaphroditus is called an apostolos. He is a special messenger. And there are certain shared characteristics among different leadership gifts in the church. But an apostle loss, uh, a sent one, someone with the gift of apostleship is usually one who is involved in starting up things in most often in the New Testament local churches. And so someone with the gift of apostleship may come in and do the work of an evangelist. He may teach and ground the church. But once the church is established, he's ready to move on and to do it all over again. He doesn't want to spend 30 years there. So there are some as apostles, some as a prophet, some as evangelists. And so evangelism is a spiritual gift. And again, that's the broader context of what he is saying. He said in verse 7 of Ephesians 4, but to each one of us was grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. And then it quotes the Old Testament, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. So he's talking about spiritual gifts in the context, and one of those spiritual gifts is that of an evangelist. And with these uh, four leadership gifts that are mentioned, that of apostleship, prophet, evangelist, and then there's a fourth gift, it's really one gift, pastors and teachers. Um, There's, in the Greek New Testament, there's different words that are translated as and, And so he uses a similar connective term between uh, apostles and prophets and past prophets and evangelists. But then, and, and, same and, some as pastors and teachers. So between pastors and teachers, he uses a different and, and it connects the word. Today, we might say pastors slash teachers. It's one gift. But each of these gifts is for the equipping of the saints for the work of service. So an evangelist is someone who is, A, certainly as a lifestyle involved in evangelism, and you don't necessarily, uh, you know, a pastor could have the gift of evangelism, 
a church planner, an apostle of sorts could have the gift of evangelism. Sometimes a person has more than one gift. Billy Graham was an evangelist, so he had a twofold responsibility, one to model evangelism, but also to be involved in equipping the saints. And so for decades, Billy Graham had the school of evangelism where he would train people how to share the gospel, how to be as effective as possible in it. So certainly with any spiritual gift, you want the power of the Holy Spirit behind it. You want God to bless or what we might say, anoint that gift. So it's possible, of course, to function with any gift, whether it's serving or evangelism or teaching in your own power and in the energy of the flesh. So in that sense, I say it's a half-truth. You want God to empower that. You want to be filled with the Spirit when you're using that gift. But there is the gift of evangelism. And for some to say they're not, they haven't studied their Bible very well. Secondly, your question concerns repentance. What is repentance? The Greek word metaneo means to change your mind. That's all it means. In, in different contexts, it's used different ways. For instance, in Acts chapter 2, when... Peter stands up on the day of Pentecost, and God had gathered there in the city tens of thousands of people because these were pious Jews, and there were three uh, occasions each year which a pious Jew who obeyed the law had to come to Jerusalem in order to honor one of these Jewish holidays, so to speak, and one of them was Pentecost. And on that day, God sent a loud, the sound of a loud rushing wind. And it's not by accident that while there was no wind, there was a sound. It would be like having a 787 crank up its motors, but there's no wind from the engines, but the sound is there. Well, God did this to gather people. What's that? Can you hear that? And thousands of people came to the spot where the 120 poured out into the street. And of course, uh, men of Israel, Peter will say, listen to these words, Jesus the Nazarene a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs. He did those things Messiah was supposed to do, which God performed through him in your midst. This one, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross. And then he goes on to say that, you know, you said he was just a man, and so you crucified him. And he argues from some passages, like one that David writes, that, David spoke of Messiah, whose body would not undergo decay, and they crucified the Lord of glory. Now, God used it to accomplish his purposes, uh, but nonetheless, they rejected Jesus. And so he says, therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. He's God and Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. When they heard this, they heard the word being preached The Old Testament scriptures that affirm that Messiah would not just be human, but he would be divine and he would be separated out by the resurrection. When they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said, repent. One word, repent, change your mind. You said he was only a man, but the scriptures revealed that he was more than a man that he fulfilled the prophecies, that he was God. So you need to change your mind. So in that context, the change of mind is what you said about Jesus. Uh, Sometimes the change of mind is what you say about sin. Someone says, um, a caller 
earlier this morning asked about a husband who doesn't advocate that homosexuality is evil. And God would say to that man, repent, change your mind. Faith is believing what God has revealed, and God has clearly revealed in the word that that is a sin, that is wrong. And people sometimes have to come to deal with their own sin. They have to repent. Now, interestingly, later in the book of Acts, Paul is in a situation, and a Philippian jailer says to him, Sirs, speaking to Paul and Barnabas, what must I do to be saved? And Peter, Paul doesn't say repent. He says believe. Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you'll be saved. So it's impossible to believe without repenting, and it's impossible to repent without belief. Now, let me ask a question to some people who I think sometimes complicate the gospel. Can a little child believe? Can a six, seven, eight-year-old believe? And I would say yes. And I, I've seen them do that, and I've led my own children along with my wife to, in leading little children into the kingdom of God, our own included. Now, if you ask them what repentance was, they probably couldn't tell you at six or seven. But they understood this. They felt a sense of guilt. They felt a sense that they had disobeyed God and they needed forgiveness. And that's the essence of it all, that there is a conviction of sin and you sense that and you want forgiveness. So if someone comes to Jesus and said, well, I want what he can do for me, deliver me from the flames of hell, but I don't really want him. I don't want to change my lifestyle. Then they've not truly believed. We could say they've not really changed their mind. They've not really repented. I find it interesting Uh, that the one book in the New Testament whose express purpose, many other signs Jesus performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. John says that one of the express purposes is conversion, that you might believe Jesus is who he claimed to be, and then having believed that you could experience that life. So it's written to the unbeliever to be converted into the believer that he might grow. And yet the word repent never once appears in the entire gospel of John. Um, Why? Because when you truly believe, you truly repent. Uh, If you want to listen to a message on this, I would say probably go to my uh, series at searchthescriptures.org. I deal with this uh, in Acts 16, the message on Acts 16.31. Um, and listen to that, and I talk about the difference between repenting and believing and that they're really the flip side of the same coin. Uh, The third question you had asked concerning the three circles, my guess is is you're dealing with um, the Campus Crusade for Christ where they have uh, three circles today. They're called CREW, uh, shortened uh, their name so as not to be offensive, I guess, to Muslims. That was a rationale anyway. But they have three circles, that of a natural man, that of a spiritual Christian, and that of a carnal Christian. Now, it is true that sometimes the carnal man, the carnal Christian, as he's sometimes called, has been abused and misused, and people are left with the false uh, thought that, yeah, he's a Christian, he's just not a good one, he's just carnal. Yeah, he's been living with his girlfriend for years, he's a carnal Christian because he made a profession of faith, but, you know, he's out of fellowship with the Lord. And, of course, the New Testament and those kinds of scenarios would give very little uh, assurance that that person really truly has met the Lord. Because if you have, 
you meet God in his discipline. Those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. He loves everyone, but again, he has a special affinity towards those who are his own. And if you are without discipline, you're illegitimate. The writer of the Hebrews says in the 12th chapter, not true sons. So um, a lot depends on what you mean by the three circles and how those are to be understood. In fairness to Dr. Bill Bright, um, he says in describing the carnal Christian, it's a footnote in the booklet that they produce that describe these three circles. He says, and I think this is a near direct quote, the person who professes to be a Christian but has a lifestyle of sin may not be a Christian at all. And then he references some passages from 1 John, Ephesians 4, etc. Um, but it is certainly an abused uh, concept in our day where people are categorized as carnal Christians because they've made a profession of faith, but their life has never really changed. And sometimes the profession is made when they're young, and then when they get out of the fence that the parents have set up for them and their lifestyle totally changes, they then at that point, you know, really show what they're made of. Uh, unfortunately, what's happening today is that's happening younger and younger and younger ever before the parents even lift the fence uh, because of the wickedness that is permeating our culture. Good question. Let's go to the next one. All righty, 435 If you have a question on today's Bible line, we do have another live caller standing by. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning. Um, I have a question concerning... Ephesians chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. Okay. Uh, the question, question arose in Bible study about the parentheses. And, you know, we tried to figure this out. Is this original to the text? When Paul is dictating, is he dictating uh, parentheses as well? Uh, That's Paul a great question. Yeah, sure, it. sure. Um Parenthetical notes in the Bible, there, there, there is no parentheses in the Greek New Testament, but there is a way to structure a point where you know, well, this is a parenthetical comment that is being made. Uh, for instance, in John's Gospel, to just to give you another illustration, letting Scripture interpret Scripture, in John 7, uh, when Jesus stands up on the, the day of the feast, and he um, makes the incredible statement, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Um, there's a parenthetical statement. Now, at this point, they don't put it in parentheses, but they could have, the way it's structured in Greek. But this he spoke to the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet gifted because Jesus was not yet glorified. So some parenthetical statements are put in there sometimes by the publisher. So on occasion, you will see parentheses in one particular publisher, you know, who has control over the ESV or the NIV or the NET or whatever, and you won't see it in another. But understand that what's contained between the parentheses is fully inspired. It is the breath of God. Uh, unless, of course, like in the NASB, it says, now this expression... And the word expression is in italics. And italics in the New Testament are not given for emphasis like we typically do today in English if we want to underscore something. Italics beginning with the Bishop's Bible was, uh, are words that are added but are not found in the Greek New Testament. So in verses 9 and 10, the only word that's not found in the Greek New Testament is the word expression. Now this expression, he ascended. 
what does it mean? Now, but it's implied or sometimes it is added in order to smooth out the text or sometimes there's what we call verb sharing. Like if I were to turn over a page in my Bible here to Ephesians chapter 5 where he says, wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. And in Ephesians 5.22, the words be subject are not contained in the Greek. And some Christian feminists would say, well, then God's not really calling them to be subject. But the verse prior to it says, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Wives to your own husbands as to the Lord. It's verb sharing in Greek, so it's implied. And sometimes the word is added to smooth out to make for good English from the original language to the receptor language. And by the way, in case, just in case, someone said, well, that's just put there by the publisher and it's not part of the original in the parallel text in Colossians 3.18, wives be subject to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. No italics in Colossians 3.18. It's just there plainly in the Greek specifically stated, and there's no need for verb sharing because he's not dealing with the same subject as in the prior verse here in Ephesians 5. So uh, back to your question. Uh, There are no punctuation marks in the Greek New Testament. There's no question marks. But the way you form a question in Greek uh, is clear. There's a certain grammatical structure that means there is a question involved. And you find that even here in verse 9. There's no question mark at the end of verse 9 in Greek, but the way it is structured is the way in which you form a question in Greek. So now this, or this expression, or this statement that he just quoted uh, from the Old Testament, and you will notice the change in typeset here in the New American Standard. And if you have a Bible with footnotes, it will often lead you to where the quotation is uh, coming from, and he's quoting from Psalm 68, And so they put it in all caps. Now this or this expression or this statement or this saying or this verse, you could have put a lot of different words into English. He ascended. What does it mean? That's all part of the inspired text of God. And again, the fact that it's parenthetical is crystal clear. And so the publishers here add the parentheses. And some could have done that with the John 7 passage I quoted. But here, the way it's structured in Greek, Greek grammar determines sometimes how you punctuate it in English, though there are no punctuation marks whatsoever in the Greek New Testament. So that is a great question. All right, 843-525-1859. Let me just pause for someone to say that this was not a part of the inspired text of Scripture. Someone in the Bible study, if they said that, They're like way off base. And for someone to question the authenticity of what you find written on the printed page of Scripture, they better have really some good reason for doing that. It is true there's a handful of verses in the Bible where there's some debate whether or not that is a scribal note that was added. But there's no debate on this passage. This is a part of the written Word of God, period. Parenthesis or no parenthesis. Great. Let's go to the next one. All right. Our next caller says he knows once saved, always saved, but would like you to interpret Hebrews 6, 6. Well, that's an hour-long question, so this is what I'm going to ask you to do. Go to searchthescriptures.org and listen to the two sermons where I deal with Hebrews 6, 6. 
and I go through the whole thing. And here's the thing. If you just sat down and said, I'm going to read through the book of Hebrews in one setting, and I'm going to put underlined in red every verse in the book of Hebrews that seems to teach the doctrine of eternal security. I remember this was an exercise I had in a seminary class with Dr. Dwight Pentecost. He said, I want you to create two columns on one side, every verse that, you know, without question, emphatically teaches the doctrine of eternal security. And then those which at first appearance seem to indicate that you can lose your salvation. And some would put Hebrews 6 in that and a few of the other warning passages found in the book of Hebrews. But again, if the whole scripture is inspired by God, it's, if it's the breath of God, if it cannot be broken, then there are no contradictions. And with each of these passages, there is an explanation contextually. And so the writer of the Hebrews, just to answer you briefly, but I'm going to put it back on you. Go back and listen to these messages on Hebrews. And if you don't have the Search the Scriptures app, you can download it on your smartphone and you can listen to the whole book of Hebrews where I go through every warning passage. And sometimes these verses are not just contextually understood and, and people draw conclusions that are not sound. For if in chapter 2, the words spoken through angels proved unalterable and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Some people think that says, how shall we escape if we reject so great a plan of salvation? That's not what it's talking about. Those who neglect, and there's a big difference between the word neglect and the word reject. He's talking to believers, and he's talking to believers in this context. He, um, it really goes back, so you need to start listening at 511. All right, start with the sermon at 511 concerning him, him who? Melchizedek just mentioned, that's the nearest antecedent. We have much to say, and it's hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant, but solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. He's talking here about growth. He's talking about moving forward, therefore leaving the elementary teaching about the Messiah. That's what they were not leaving. They were camping on the ABCs of the Messiah. They were living in the shadows rather than in the reality of what Jesus had done. And part of the motivation was to escape persecution. Let us, believers, and the writer includes himself in this, press on to maturity. So the context is not justification, it's sanctification. It's not being converted, it's growing, pressing on to maturity. And so that's what he's dealing with here in Hebrews 6, 6. So it's two hours of preaching, but I will go through it careful, verse by verse, phrase by phrase. And if I even began to address it, I would have been out of time because we only have five seconds. So thanks for being with us. Walk with Christ. <laughs> 